Uh, I've often said it's not just a time of immorality. It's a time of madness. It's like we are not just losing our moral compass. We're going nuts. Because listening to some of this, I think, now, there is a certain insanity to, on the one hand, saying to Christians and or social conservatives, you must be tolerant, you must be more willing to hear other viewpoints, and then turning around and saying, but there is only one viewpoint we will allow. That makes me feel a little crazy. On the one hand, we are told that we must ban any kind of counseling for people who want to walk away from homosexuality because you can't change what you really are. But if you're born male and you decide at the age of eight that perhaps you're female, oh yeah, well, we'll help you change what you really are by giving you hormones and offering surgery and a whole new identity. And again, it's not just that I believe so much of this is immoral. There's also a crazy contradiction that we are being forced to accept. And I think that that is, of course, no longer limited to the culture. For some time, much of what we were dealing with was attempting to speak truth to a culture which was rejecting truth. Now we are also having to defend truth within the church. Because whereas at one time the debate was, is the Bible and the biblical view correct versus the secular view, now the debate within the church is shifting to, well, is this really the biblical view? Or perhaps should we accept a revision of the biblical view? That's what I'd like to discuss with you as we talk about pro-gay theology. Pro-gay theology is, in essence, a revision. It is an attempt to revise our understanding of what the Bible does or does not say about homosexuality. Now, when I embraced pro-gay theology back in the late 70s and early 80s, It was relatively unknown. As you know today, whole denominations have shifted towards embracing it. The Episcopal Church USA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Presbyterian Church USA, a number of figures who identify as evangelical, uh, Dr. Tony Campolo, the very popular speaker, Jen Hatmaker, Uh, have shifted to a pro-gay interpretation of Scripture. It is quickly becoming one of the most divisive issues, not between the church and the culture, but also within the church as well, which leads to to an important, significant question. Is this worth debating? Because there are some doctrinal issues, aren't there, that we agree to disagree on, and we don't divide over. Um. Somebody's right about the rapture. (laughs) Okay, it's either pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, but something's going to happen. I can't imagine us breaking fellowship over that. Somebody's right about eternal security. I can't imagine us actually saying, well, I wouldn't go to church with anybody who believes and wants saved, always saved. I mean, there are, you know, do you sprinkle or do you dunk? I mean, I, I can't believe we would really divide over that. So there are secondary issues. I believe the two dangers we are facing now, one is the danger of revisionism. 
revising what the scripture says about sexuality and the definition of marriage and family. The second is a movement to minimize. Revision is what I'd like to talk about, but let me at least mention the movement to minimize. The movement to minimize is a movement to say, well, basically, okay, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say gay affirming, I say no. Eh, not that big a deal. We can basically stay in communion regardless. Is this such an issue? I would argue that it is not. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament very specifically name and condemn sexual sin of any kind. Now, that right there tells me the sexual sin, that is anything falling short of what God intended for the human sexual experience, is very serious. The first case of church discipline we know of in the book of Corinth, uh, or Paul's letter to the Corinthians, occurred over sexual sin occurring within the church, and Paul's rebuke was more to the church at Corinth than to the individual when he said, what is the matter with you people? You are tolerating in your congregation behavior that should never be tolerated. Uh, it's also true that uh, uh, the sexual union between man and woman, and this may be a most important point, has been afforded the highest honor. In the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel is viewed as a marriage and a union. In the New Testament, the relationship between Christ and his church. that uh, uh, Paul said that the marriage of the man and woman and the union between man and woman is a type of God's relationship to his people. That tells me that, that this has been afforded the honor of being a type of something sacred. And you don't mess with biblical types. Besides all of which, the first critical thing God said about a human was, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will resolve that problem by creating this union. Now, we all know that God did not create Adam and go, oh my gosh, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's missing here. What did I forget? You know, it wasn't like, oh, there's a problem, I better solve it. He created Adam with full intention of creating Eve and creating the male-female union as the answer to basic God-ordained needs. The need for partnering, the need for covenant, the need for sexual intimacy, the need for safety, the need to procreate, the need to create something on earth that would properly typify God's union with his people and God's relationship to his children. That all tells me that sex is pretty serious stuff. When we tamper with biblical definitions of sexuality, we are tampering with the sacred. Does that mean that those who profess to be gay and Christian are automatically unsaved people? I'm not going to go so far as to say that. When I was a part of the gay church, everyone there was what I call a former. We were all former Baptist, former Calvary Chapel, former Assembly of God, former Foursquare, former Lutherans. Nobody I knew was saved in that church. We were all people who had been born again in other churches, wrestled with our sexuality, finally decided to yield to our sexuality, and then wanted to find a way to harmonize our sexuality with our faith. And that was when we embraced the pro-gay interpretation of the scripture. Now, I will leave it to the Arminiast and the Calvinist to duke it out over whether or not you can lose your salvation once you've been born again. My point is, 
I know that Christians can be wrong and still be saved. So, for example, I certainly think Peter was saved, and yet Paul said to, in his letter to the Galatians, I withstood Peter because he was wrong. When Paul rebuked the Corinthian church, that place was a mess, wasn't it? People getting drunk at communion and suing each other and off into different factions and so forth. He didn't tell them you're wrong, therefore you're not saved. He recognized you are saints and you are wrong. In fact, in uh, uh, the letters Jesus instructed John to write to the churches in the book of the Revelation, notice most all of the churches received a message saying something like this, I know what is good about you. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you, therefore repent. So for that reason, I believe that a believer may be in sin, and I'm not going to argue with that believer over whether or not that person is saved. What I am going to argue is you may be saved, but you're not right. Those are two very different things, and the one doesn't cancel out the other. So I don't find it useful to say to someone who says, I'm a gay Christian, oh no, you're not really a Christian, because I can't see inside the soul to see whether or not they've really been born again. What I'm more interested in is what can we verify? This is what the inspired authoritative word of God has to say about your sexuality. If your life is not in line with that, I don't know whether or not you're saved, but I do know you're wrong. And to be outside of God's will and wrong in such a significant area is to be in a very serious place indeed. With that in mind, let's look at what pro-gay theology is, what it professes, and how we can respond to it. Let's look first at what it is. Pro-gay theology, or what I call revisionist theology, it claims that biblical references to homosexuality have been mistranslated, misunderstood, or excuse me, misinterpreted, or misunderstood, one of those three. This is an important point. Most pro-gay theologians and most people who believe pro-gay theology, they, they, uh, it's not that they don't believe in the authority of the Bible. More often than not, I think you'll find they do. In fact, if you know someone who uh, identifies as a gay Christian, in most cases that person will say, yeah, I agree with you on the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the coming judgment, the fall of humanity. I believe in all of the basics. It's on this issue, they say, we're getting the Bible wrong. In other words, pro-gay theology says there's nothing wrong with the Bible. It is divinely inspired. It is authoritative. However, we haven't been reading it properly. We either mistranslated it. We lost something between the Hebrew and the English or the Greek and the English. Or we are misinterpreting it, as people can do, or we have misunderstood it. Now, that brings up the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. When we practice exegesis, we draw the meaning of the document from the document itself. What does this say? When I practice eisegesis, I impose onto the document what I want it to say. And uh, really, people can do that with the scripture. I mean, if you choke the Bible hard enough, I guess you can get it to say whatever you want. Cultists have done that. Um, over the centuries, racists have done that to legitimize slavery or racism in some form. My goodness, there were people who were active participants in the Holocaust during the Second World War who really believed there was biblical justification for persecuting and annihilating Jewish people. So if one has a pre-existing idea of what one hopes the Bible says, one can impose that idea onto the Bible and read it into the Bible. 
My conviction is that pro-gay theology is a classic case of eisegesis. I want the Bible to approve of what I'm doing, therefore I will read that into the Bible. Now, uh, time prohibits getting into all of the different nuances and different uh, arguments inherent in pro-gay theology. What I want to do this afternoon is just look at the five scripture verses that specifically name and condemn homosexuality. I want to look at how pro-gay theology reinterprets those verses, and I'd like to offer a response to that reinterpretation. Uh, if you'd like to pursue this in more detail, at the table I've got um, a card you can fill out. If you give me your name and email address, I'll send you a free ebook on answering pro-gay theology that takes this in much more detail. And so if that's a subject that interests you, just uh, fill out one of those cards. I'll be glad to send that to you for free. For now, let's start with the prohibitive verses. I know if we're talking about the Bible and homosexuality properly, we should start in Genesis 1. We really should. And such a discussion would include the destruction of Sodom, of course. But since I want to just go with the prohibitive verses, let's start with Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Um, the first is prohibitive. Thou shalt not lie with a male as with a female. It's an abomination. The second, chapter 20, verse 13, is punitive. If a man lies with a man as with a woman, they have committed an abomination. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, in context, you remember Leviticus is essentially about separation. God called Israel out and said, you are going to be mine. I'm going to take you from bondage into a land that I will give you. You will be my separated, peculiar people. And a theme that often runs through Leviticus is, you shall distinguish, very important. You shall distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the immoral and the moral. There will be distinctions you will make, which the surrounding nations will not make. And so he, in essence, said there are other nations and cultures that will practice many things that are forbidden to you. Why? Because you are my holy, peculiar, separated people. It's the theme of Leviticus. And that separation extends itself into their dietary laws, to their ceremonies, to their civil relationships, and to their sexual relationships. Now, these chapters, 18 and 20, are primarily about sexual relationships. Both of those chapters prohibit Adultery, incest in any form, bestiality, prostitution, and homosexuality. Those are the primary sexual behaviors making up the prohibitions in these chapters. And it does seem these verses are pretty clear and self-explanatory. A man shall not lie with a man as a man would lie with a woman. But the revisionists would say, ah, oh, wait a minute, you're picking and choosing, you're picking and choosing. Because there's a lot of verses in Leviticus you Christians don't take seriously today. Leviticus also says you're not supposed to eat certain types of shellfish. What are you doing out at Red Lobster eating down that stuff, you know? Or you're not supposed to wear mixed fabrics. How come some of you still wear polyester? Et cetera, et cetera. And so they'll basically say, if you don't observe everything written in Leviticus, you have no business saying Leviticus condemns anything because if you think that condemnation is relevant today, why don't you also think all the other condemnations are relevant today? Now, let me first admit, I do think at times <clears throat> the church has picked and chosen which sins we are going to get the most excited about. I do believe that to be true. 
I do believe over the years I have heard more vehemence in tone and content when people preach against homosexuality than I have heard when people are talking about sex before marriage or arrogance or gossip or even adultery. And for that reason, I would have to agree with pro-gay theologians who say, boy, you guys sure do tend to get angry about homosexuality in ways you don't get angry about other sins. In fairness, though, I will also say these other sins generally don't have movements championing them and pressuring the church to change our position on these sins. So for that reason, I think that probably explains some of the vehemence. But again, I, I will allow that there is some legitimacy to that argument. However, my first response would be the prohibitions here are repeated throughout Scripture. Now, there are some prohibitions in Leviticus that are self-evident in the fact that they are dietary or ceremonial. That is true. Now, if you take the Bible in its entirety, you see very plainly that the New Testament both validates the law and clarifies the law's application to the modern believer. So Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Paul said, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's righteous and good. In fact, I wouldn't know what a sinner I was unless I had compared my life to the law and found I fell short. But under inspiration of the same Holy Spirit who inspired Moses, the authors of the New Testament, most notably Paul, but also the author of Hebrews, pointed out, that dietary and ceremonial aspects of the law are no longer binding to the believer today. One may choose to observe them if one wishes to. But Paul himself said circumcision or uncircumcision, that is not the primary issue. He said that observing feast and dietary laws and calendars and so forth was no longer a primary issue. And the author of Hebrews made it clear that the offering of blood sacrifice is not a necessity because the one sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for all time. So if I take the Bible in its entirety, I'm not picking and choosing. Rather, I'm taking the Bible in its entirety and saying, yes, the law is good, and God himself has verified that there are aspects, both dietary and ceremonial, within the law which are no longer applicable to the believer today. Does that mean that none of the law applies to the believer today? Oh, no. Good grief, the commandment to love God is in the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Anybody really want to say that's no longer applicable? The commandment to love your neighbor, frequently quoted, by the way, by our revisionist friends, that's the law. I mean, that's where you find it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Anybody going to say that's not applicable? Of course not. Ditto for these chapters. Chapters 18 and 20 prohibit behaviors that are not only prohibited in Leviticus, but prohibited throughout all of Scripture. Therefore, in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, you see adultery condemned as it is condemned throughout Scripture. You see prostitution condemned as it is condemned throughout Scripture. Incest condemned as it is condemned throughout Scripture. And by the way, nobody, not even the most liberal theologian, is saying because adultery and incest and prostitution are condemned in Leviticus, that condemnation no longer applies because it's the law. Nobody's using that tactic on those sins. Why would we use it on homosexuality? That also is condemned in Leviticus and throughout Scripture. 
And, and that raises an interesting point, which is my second response, and that is the practices in these chapters, 18 and 20, God said they defiled the land. That means they clearly were universal in their prohibition. So God was not saying the practice of homosexuality, prostitution, bestiality, and uh, adultery are just practices condemned for the people of Israel. What he is saying is the people who practice those behaviors, whether they be believers or non-believers, Jewish or Gentile, those behaviors defile the very environment which is an interesting point considering the way God views that behavior, which leads really to the final point, which is that some commandments are contained in the Old Testament law. They're just contained within it, dietary and ceremonial. Others transcend the Old Testament law in that they are reiterated throughout Scripture. Homosexuality is one of them. Uh, I believe you've had Sean McDowell out to speak before, haven't you? A great guy, a wonderful guy. Uh, he made an interesting point about this, about the Levitical Code, when he said, hey, there are some laws that are state laws and there are some laws that are federal laws. State laws apply only to the state. So something may be legal in Washington that's not legal in California. I can't imagine anything not being legal in California, but there may be. Um, so if it's a state law, it's not applicable to all people. But if it's a federal law, no matter what state you live in, that law applies. Now, when you see something contained in the Old Testament and reiterated throughout both the Old and the New Testament, you know what? That sucker is a federal law. Now, if it's a federal law, then of course it has to be uh, regarded as something transcending state law and applying to all people. That is true of much that is contained in the Mosaic Law. It constitutes a federal law, not a state law, in that it is reiterated throughout all of Scripture. Now, that leads to an argument you will often hear. It's not a prohibitive verse, but let's go over it anyway, which is Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. And that argument commonly implies that, hey, if Jesus himself did not say anything about it, Obviously, it doesn't matter to Jesus, and if it doesn't matter to Jesus, it doesn't matter to God, and if it doesn't matter to God, it shouldn't matter to us. A few responses to that. First of all, the Gospels are authoritative, absolutely, but they're not exhaustive. That is to say, the Gospels don't even pretend to have recorded everything Jesus said and did. In fact, John himself said in uh, John 21, 25, all the books ever written couldn't contain everything Jesus did. So clearly in the gospel accounts, the, the gospel writers were not camcorders following Jesus around, taking down every word he said and every detail of his life. The pro-gay theologian really cannot with integrity say, I know that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Just as I cannot with integrity say, I know he did say something about homosexuality. I don't know that. What I do know is that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have no written account of him saying homosexuality is a sin. Does that alone mean that homosexuality is not a sin? Well, wait a minute. How could it? There are so many other behaviors Jesus did not name. Jesus said nothing in the Gospels about bestiality. Nothing. He really did not say anything specifically about incest. 
You could technically say he did not even specifically prohibit spousal abuse. Would anybody really even consider the possibility he approved of those behaviors just because he did not openly mention them? No. Why? They were universally understood to be wrong, and he did not challenge that universal understanding. Which leads to an interesting point. Some say that Jesus' alleged silence on homosexuality is a good argument for homosexuality. I would argue just the opposite. Jesus was never shy about overturning people's wrong assumptions, was he? Look at the way he validated children. At that time, children were throwaways. He said, no, no, let them come to me. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Offend one of these little ones, you'd be better off if somebody had put a millstone around your neck and thrown you in the ocean. He overturned their ideas about kids. He certainly overturned their ideas about women. Female followers. He goes out of his way to converse with a Samaritan woman. Two big lines he crossed there, both cultural and sexual. And he validated and dignified women, even women in sin. When he finds one who's about to be executed for her sins, he says, all you guys need to do is prove that you're not guilty of the same thing, and hey, go for it. Not one of them could. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, you notice how many times he said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He wasn't shy about overturning their ideas if they had the wrong idea. Now, nobody would argue when he was preaching to his largely Hebrew crowds that the vast majority of them, if not all of them, believed that homosexuality was a sin. That is inarguable. That was the common belief. If Jesus believed that homosexuality was legitimate, he, being God, would have to know that homosexual people would be seen as falling short of God's will for centuries and centuries and centuries. That was his perfect opportunity to say, you have heard it said, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. But I say unto you that a monogamous same-sex relationship can be blessed. That was the perfect chance to do it. And having done that, he would have prevented all these alleged centuries of alleged error. And of course, he did not do that. What did he do? Maybe that's the most important point. Response three, he did affirm the nature of marriage. Matthew 19, 4 to 5, the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to catch him on a technicality about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he said, let's cut to the chase. Let's go to created intent. Know you not that from the beginning he created the male and female. For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two will be one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one set asunder. What did he just say? This is the standard. This is what God intended that the marital sexual union be permanent, what God has joined together, let no one set asunder, that it be monogamous, the two will become one flesh, that it be independent, a man will leave his father and mother, and that it be heterosexual. Know you not, he created them male and female. Thereby, he said, this is what the creator intended, and anything falling short of that is by definition a sin be it sex before marriage, adultery, prostitution, any form of fornication, or homosexuality. Now, if he has said this is the standard, 
then he has also clearly by intellectual implication said anything short of this is not the standard. So you're driving down the freeway and the sign says speed limit 65 miles per hour. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Two miles later, do you need a sign saying, don't go 75 because the speed limit is 65? No. Why? Because it already said, this is the limit. You wouldn't need to go three miles later and see a sign saying, don't go 85. Why? Because the sign clearly said, this is the standard. Anything over that is a crime. Jesus said, this is the standard. Anything short of this is a sin. I would argue that Jesus, although in the Gospels did not say anything specifically about homosexuality, did indeed say something very specific about what he intended the human sexual experience to be. And anything falling short of that is by definition a sin. Let's go to uh, Paul in the New Testament then. Let's look at Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy. Let's begin with Romans 1, 26 to 27. A brief description of homosexuality. By the, by the way, this is the only description of lesbianism we find in the Bible. Um, God gave them unto vile affections. Even the women did leave the natural use of the man. The men left the natural use of the woman. Men with men working what is unseemly, unseemly receiving in themselves due compensation. Okay, you've read Romans. You know that it, Paul's goal here is not to go off on a tirade against lesbian and gay people. That's not what he's doing here. Romans is a brilliant legal argument by which Paul opens by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes both Jew and Greek. And then he goes on to explain why both Jew and Greek need the gospel. So he starts with the non-believers, the Gentile population, basically. And he says of that population, they have the capacity to know that there is a God. They have willingly said, I choose not to accept that. And as a result, because the creation is now worshiping itself rather than the creator, everything is topsy-turvy. Even their women did abandon the natural use of men, and women turned towards women, and men turned towards men. And then he goes off on a long list of many other sins, both sexual and non-sexual. But the point he's making is humanity has been turned on its head because the Gentile world is not acknowledging the creator. Then in chapter two, he says to his Jewish readers, don't get comfortable. Just because you acknowledge a creator and have the law of God, if you're not keeping it, you're no better than the Gentiles. By the time you get to about chapter four and five, you're like, "Uh, I give up. And that's the idea, of course. And that's when he introduces the need we all have for salvation. It is interesting, though, that he uses homosexuality as a primary symptom of humanity's fallen state. That is significant because it's almost as if he's going back to the book of Genesis and saying, God created humanity. Humanity was meant to worship God. God created the male-female union as an answer to human need and for procreation. Now, Paul is saying everything is such a mess that the creation, humanity, is no longer worshiping God, but worshiping itself. So even the most foundational of all relationships, the sexual relationship, has now been turned on its head. So that is a primary way of saying homosexuality is symptomatic 
of fallen nature. Now, some pro-gay theologians and revisionists would argue, uh-uh, no. These people, Paul describes, they're not gay. They're not lesbian. Not really. Because they abandoned the natural use of the opposite sex. That means these must have been heterosexuals engaging in homosexual relationships. And therefore, what is the sin they committed? This is very important. The sin they committed was they did not do what was natural to them. Now, if you think about the implications of that, they are pretty broad. Now, the pro-gay theologian is saying, it is a sin not to be true to yourself. You must do what comes naturally to you. Well, good grief. You imagine what this culture would be like if all of us did what came naturally to us? And even as a Christian, I got to say, now I praise God for so much of, of what he has done in my life. So many changes he has made. But good grief, this sucker is still quite a work in progress, absolutely. And while on the one hand, I praise God for changes he's made in some parts of my life, um, my temper is still being worked on. And at this age, I have to admit, with embarrassment, somebody cuts me off on the freeway. It would feel so natural to me to, you know, wave to them. I don't ever do that. I No, I do not do that. That's what Christian bumper stickers are for. You, you can't. No, I, I really wouldn't. I would never do that. But I would be less than honest if I didn't admit that sometimes I sure feel like greeting them in a certain way. Um, and that's absolutely wrong. And it's absolutely natural to Joe Dallas. Now, let me be completely ridiculous for a moment instead of just moderately ridiculous. Could you imagine me saying, look, ever since I was a boy, I don't know why, but I have always felt like making that gesture to people. I just always have. I actually think I was born that way. And I've tried to change. I went to counseling. I got prayer. I read the books. I've tried reorientation therapy to help me get over that deeply ingrained desire, which I believe is genetic to greet people with a certain digit of my hand. And you know what? I never changed. I never changed. So I have concluded God must have intended me to do that because it's natural to me. Well, of course, that's ludicrous. And I know I'm being a real jerk to even compare something as complex as, as uh, sexual response to something as simple as making an obscene gesture. But the principle is the same. The fact that something is natural to the individual does not mean it is natural in God's sight. Paul is using an objective standard here, not a subjective one. Pro-gay theology seeks to subjectify what is objective and say, well, this is condemned because it was not natural to them, rather than recognizing, no, 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 there is a natural standard ordained by God, and it may contradict what we feel is natural to us, but the Bible doesn't speak all that well of what seems natural to the individual, which is why Paul said the carnal or the natural mind, it doesn't even receive the things of God, and that is true, that is true. Besides which, I would argue these men and women burnt, these men in particular burned in lust for each other, 
which is not what heterosexuals do if they are experimenting with homosexuality. That does happen, but they're not deeply attracted to each other as these people are. And most important, there are no contingencies in this chapter. In other words, a contingency would be, thou shalt not unless. That's a contingency. Well, when it comes to sexual morality in the Bible, there are never contingencies. There is never a thou shalt not commit adultery unless you really love the other woman. Thou shalt not hire a prostitute unless there's nothing else available. Thou shalt not commit incest unless you really love each other. No. There are no contingencies applied to any other sexual sins, and there are no contingencies applied to homosexuality saying, thou shalt not lie with someone of the same sex, unless, of course, it's a deeply committed relationship. No. Does that mean that there is no such thing as homosexual love, that no homosexual relationships are deeply committed? Of course not. No. Gosh, I've known lesbian and gay couples that are very committed to each other, love each other very deeply. I would even say... In the interest of being honest, I've known lesbian and gay relationships that were a lot healthier than some heterosexual relationships I've known. That's not the point. The question is, does love legitimize a relationship? No, it does not. My wife loves me. I wouldn't believe her if she said, oh, Joseph, you are forever everything I want you to be. You're so manly, you're so studly, you're so wonderful, you're so brilliant. No, I am not. <laughs> there are younger men, much better looking in much better shape, much more interesting, much more intelligent, who make a lot more money and do something normal for a living, by the way. Might be a breath of fresh air for her. Is she going to be legitimized if she says, Joseph, sorry, but I have fallen in love with this other guy. We have real love. I've never loved you the way I love him. He and I have something you and I never had. I feel like I have met my soulmate. Could that legitimize her leaving me? No, really doesn't. You know, my favorite actor of all time is Spencer Tracy. I love his movies. And it is common knowledge that he had a very long-term relationship with the actress Catherine Hepburn. They made a lot of movies together and they also had a very, very deeply committed relationship. And he was married, not to Catherine Hepburn. It was adultery. Their relationship lasted about 30, almost 40 years. They loved each other very deeply. Their romance is the stuff of Hollywood legends. And, not but, and it was adultery. The one doesn't cancel out the other. It was adultery. They loved each other. It was wrong. They cared deeply about each other. They're all true. Love does not legitimize. Love may enhance, but it doesn't legitimize. The fact that I love an individual does not mean the relationship thereby is sanctified, especially if it becomes sexual. Now that takes us into 1 Corinthians. I'm going to combine these verses, um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. Uh, both of these, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. In both of these, these are prohibitions against a number of sins, including homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul said certain behaviors exempt people from the kingdom, including homosexuality. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Paul said the law condemns certain behaviors. It's made to condemn these behaviors, including homosexuality. In both of these verses, Paul uses a Greek word, 
a term actually, arsenokoite. Arsenokoite. And that is a word that is not found in any writings prior to Paul. At the time Paul wrote to Timothy and to Corinth, uh, there were other words he could have used for homosexuality, and he did not use those words. Instead, he coined his own phrase, arsenokoite. And as a result, the pro-gay theologian says, oh, well then, he couldn't have meant homosexuals. Maybe he meant pedophiles, maybe he meant prostitutes, maybe he meant abusive relationships, but he did not mean homosexuals because that word is peculiar to Paul and it is at least ambiguous. We cannot know what he meant by arsenokoite. In response, let me point out that arsenokoite is simply a combination of two words we do know, arsene and koite. In the New Testament, arsene is used to mean male with an emphasis on biology. In most uh, instances, if you check your Strong's Concordance, where you see the word men or man, the word anthropos is used, which means a, ma a human who happens to be male, emphasis on humanity. A few times in the New Testament, Arsene is used to emphasize maleness, like Mary brought forth an Arsene child, emphasis on biology. It's only used a few times. Arsene, koite is a term you find twice in the New Testament. Um, in Romans 13, 13, it's used in a negative sense, let us not walk in koite. Hebrews 13, 4, it's used in a positive sense. <clears throat> Marriage is honorable in all things and the koite is undefiled. Koite means basically a bed with a sexual connotation. Like when we say people went to bed together, usually we mean they had a sexual relationship. So arsene and koite, male's bed, the combination seems very clear. What ends the argument for me though goes beyond that. At the time Paul wrote to Corinth and Timothy, the Septuagint was widely in use. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, the Greek translation of the Leviticus prohibitions against homosexuality, which we just read through, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, the Greek translation of those prohibitions included the words arsenos and koiten. Arsenos as in a man shall not lie with a man, koiten as in lie with. What did Paul do? He took wording from the interpretation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which his readers would be very familiar with, and he coined a phrase based on the terms already used to condemn homosexuality. There was nothing ambiguous about that. Now, why did he not use any of the terms available at the time? That is anybody's guess. I would propose this, though. At that time, the terms for homosexuals tended to be terms noting not only the people were homosexual, but also emphasizing the kind of homosexual sex they wanted to engage in, if they took the dominant role or the passive role. Now, if Paul had used any of those terms, what would he have said? Homosexuality is only condemned if you take the passive role, or homosexuality is only condemned if you take the dominant role. Paul said, forget that any erotic connection between people of the same sex is wrong, no matter who is doing what to whom. So for all of those reasons, I believe that pro-gay theology, revisionist theology, is on a very shaky foundation. You can go a bit beyond proof texting, though, by asking the obvious question. If the Bible is inspired by God, and God is omniscient, why was God so 
negligent about lesbian and gay people. If he approves of homosexuality and he is omniscient and the Bible is inspired by this omniscient God, why is there no instruction whatsoever for lesbian and gay couples? Why is there not even one positive example of a lesbian woman or a gay man in all of Scripture? Why did God only provide marital instruction for heterosexuals and none for homosexuals? If he approved of homosexuality, why was he so negligent as to offer nothing for homosexual people? Now, it is true some people try to sexualize King David's relationship with Jonathan because they were very close friends. But anybody who's even casually studied David's life would have to conclude whatever other problems the guy had, this certainly doesn't appear to have been one of them. Because the man's life itself testified to a very strong appetite for women. Besides which, I believe David when he said, Jonathan, when he heard Jonathan had died, I loved you more than I've loved any woman. I think that's true. The question becomes, if you love someone more than you loved anybody else, does that automatically mean it was sexual in nature? Of course not. Many of us love someone more than we've ever loved anyone romantically or sexually. The depth of love does not determine the nature of the love. The fact that you love someone very deeply means it could be a marital relationship, it could be a sexual relationship, it could be a friendship, it could be another family member. So with all that in mind, why are people willing to accept something which seems so self-evidently unintelligent and inconsistent with the rest of Scripture? I would argue that above everything else, we are seeing a time of great deception. You remember when Jesus in the Olivet Discourse discussed what the end times would be like, one of the first things he said was, take heed that no one deceive you. And he said, in fact, those days would get so deceptive, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. And Paul said something similar to Timothy when he said, in the end times it will get perilous. People will not tolerate, they will not endure sound doctrine. Note the times we are in, whether we're talking about the school system, the culture in general, or the church. More and more people are not saying, I disagree with what you say. They are saying, I will not endure. I will not tolerate what you say. That is a time of gross deception, which I believe is the broader context in which pro-gay theology exists among many other deceptive doctrines and practices, all of which led the author, Dr. Paul Morris, who wrote on the topic to pose this question. But if I were a Christian homosexual, this one question would disturb me. Am I interpreting the scripture in the light of my proclivity? Or should I be interpreting my proclivity in the light of scripture? A relevant question to ask of anyone. All right, would you like to take a break now or should we go straight into the next session? How would you like to do this? Okay, great. Dr. D, thank you.